How can you harness the power of mindfulness to ignite passion in your relationship? And how do you use that same power to take charge of your own happiness, to find all the ways that you're standing in your own way and to, well, get out of the way? That's what we're covering in today's episode. But first, before we dive into mindfulness, let's start with gratitude. Thank you for helping get the word out about Relationship Alive, for being here with me right now, and for your reviews on iTunes, which I love to read. You never know when someone you know might need some help and support, and letting people know about Relationship Alive is a good way to ensure that we're top of mind when they have something going on in their life or their relationship and they need some support. Also, a big thank you to this week's generous sponsors, Kent, Alberto, Sarah, and Joseph. Thank you so much for your support and help ensuring that Relationship Alive can continue. And if you are finding the show to be helpful in your life, please visit neilsatin.com support or text the word support to the number 33444 and choose something that feels right for you. You can make a one-time contribution or choose something ongoing. Just want to let you know that every little bit helps. If you're interested in getting the full Relationship Alive experience in person, then consider coming to our live premiere on June 6th here in Portland, Maine, which will feature special guest Terry Reel, author of The New Rules of Marriage, and musical guest Katie Matzel. We have people coming in from all over the country to check it out, and it is definitely going to be a good time with a chance to have your questions answered by me and Terry Reel. So for more information, just visit neilsatin.com slash tickets. Now, if you don't want to come to Maine on June 6th, you can still get support for your relationship in our free Facebook community. Just search for the Relationship Alive community on Facebook and click join, or I think it says join group. It's as easy as that. And finally, when you want to bring mindfulness to your communication, you can download my free guide to my top three relationship communication secrets. No matter what you want to communicate about, these three secrets will help ensure that you can deepen your connection, even if it's something super challenging. Just visit neilsatin.com relate or text the word relate to the number 33444 to download the free guide. Okay. I think that's it, so let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. We've covered lots of aspects of how to develop true intimacy with your partner, how to communicate well, how to understand each other, how to get past your triggers. Today, I want to focus on how you can bring that mindful connection that you're developing with your partner into the bedroom so that you can have passionate, thrilling, sexual connection with your partner. Because often that's, if not part of why we're in relationship, it's a big part of why we're in relationship. In fact, recently I put the question out to the Relationship Alive community on Facebook, uh, how important is sex to you? And there were very few people who said, yeah, it's not a big deal to me. Almost everyone, without a doubt, talked about how important a sexual, intimate connection was. So there's the intimacy, that's your closeness and your connectedness. And then there's, of course, your ability to bring uh, that uh, intimacy into the way that you connect in the bedroom with your partner. And today we have an expert in that very topic to chat with us. Her name is Dr. Cheryl Fraser, and she is the author of Buddha's Bedroom, The Mindful Loving Path to Sexual Passion and Lifelong Intimacy. And Cheryl actually reached out to me and sent me a copy of her book, and I was just really moved by how simple it is and yet how powerful the results can be for you. So I'm 
Really excited to have her here on the show. As usual, we will have a detailed transcript and show guide with relevant links. To download that, all you have to do is visit neilsatin.com slash BB. That's the letter B and then the letter B. And that stands for Buddha's Bedroom. So I'm making it really easy for you. Or you can, as always, text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. So let's dive right into the bedroom with Buddha and with Dr. Cheryl Fraser. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, it's so much my pleasure. So happy to be talking with you. Well, before we can get into bed, (laughs) (laughs) let's talk about the way that you start your book, which I love, which is bringing mindfulness to your relationship and the sense that our partners aren't there to make us happy and how that desire for our partner to be that for us is at the root of so much unhappiness. So before we can really get into bed with our partners, we often have this obstacle of feeling the, um, the resentments that we've stored about them or the abrasiveness that is actually an obstacle to the closeness, to the openness to being there with them in a, in a sexual way. So how did you arrive there? And what, what is like, what's our good entry point here? I mean, maybe it's mm-hmm. just with the Buddha and how the Buddha's teachings really do apply to the misery, the potential misery of relationship, as well as the bliss and joy. Well, I think that the short handle there is uh, great love and great sex are all in our head. And that ultimately is absolutely true. Uh, when I'm in love with you, it's in my head. When I'm disgruntled with you, I'm in. it's in my head. When I'm horny, it's in my head, even if it's in my body. That's why we can have an orgasm in our sleep with absolutely no physical contact. It's because actual eroticism and sexual response is also in our head. So, you know, the title of the book is a little bit controversial in some circles. I'm a card-carrying Buddhist, whatever that is. I've been studying for 25 years, and I teach Buddhism in long retreats, and I've studied in Tibet and India, etc. And Buddha's bedroom is a bit of a misnomer in that Buddha was a celibate monk after the age of about um, early 20s when he left his pleasure palace and his concubines and his wife and his infant child to go discover the root of suffering. So... Why would we put Buddha in the bedroom? Because ultimately, uh, the teachings of Buddhism, and whether you're a secular person, a Christian, Hindu, Muslim, whatever your uh, religious or philosophical bent is, the beautiful thing about the teachings of Buddhist philosophy is they're simply about training your mind and looking at your experience, whatever your belief and religious system are. How do we bring that to love and sex, which is the root of your question? In essence, whether I'm happy or not happy is in my mind, and that applies directly to our relationships. So I'll give a very simple example. Let's say after this interview, you and I have to drive somewhere. We've got a meeting, and we each go out to our car after we hang up from each other, and we've each got a flat tire. Okay. Now, what happens next is entirely up to our head. Uh, Do we have a tantrum? This is a terrible day. I'm going to be late for my interview. Oh, no, it's a disaster. Why does this always happen to me? None of that has anything to do with the tire. (laughs) It's completely due to my mind's reaction to reality. Reality is I have a flat tire. So let's say I'm going to make me the bad guy and you're going to be the enlightened one here, Neil. Let's say I have a tantrum and I'm freaking out here in in, in my little place. Oh, no. Meanwhile, Neil goes out to his car and is it, is it, as a highly civilized human being, he sees his flat tire and he goes, oh, okay, that happened. Well, I'll have to adjust my plan now. The difference between you and I is in our minds and our mind's reaction to reality. In that moment, I uh, freak out. My mind goes into suffering and dismay and creates my problem, not the flat tire. You have the same real issue. The car won't work in the way you need it to here and now. And you simply go, okay, that happened. Reality changed. And I, Neil, I'm going to go with the flow and make a new plan. Call a friend, grab a bus, reschedule your appointment. This is so simple. We all know it from our daily experience that when we react to something, that's when we suffer. That's Buddhism 101. 
How does that apply to love? Well, let's say uh, my sweetheart comes home today and he promised uh, he was going to get cat food. Now, my sweetheart has adult ADD. He's a little bit forgetful. So let's say he promised to get cat food. I texted him, hey, hon, remember the cat food? Because <laughs> you know, that's part of our relationship agreement around him forgetting things. And he walks in and we all know where this is heading. Blissfully happy to see me. Gives me a hug and a kiss. The cat's meowing. Where's the cat food? His face falls. In that moment, reality is I have a person who's forgotten to to buy cat food. That's all that's happened. But what happens next can often be, and I am not proud to admit I've gone there. Oh, for goodness sakes, I can't rely on you. I texted you. Couldn't you just check the phone before you leave the store? What You know, what's the deal? I am suffering, but it's in my mind. It's certainly not in the cat food. It's certainly not the cat's fault. And arguably, and this is where it gets challenging, arguably my misery isn't because my partner did or didn't do something. My misery is because I don't like reality. Mm. I don't like the reality that they did or didn't do something. So to your point in your introduction about um, you know whether or not we ever are in the right relationship or can we be happy in our relationship, I'm fond of saying we all marry or fall in love with the wrong person if we expect them to make us happy all the time. And the teaching, the first quarter of the book really is about this teaching of examine your mindset and uh, don't change your mate, change your mind. And for most of the small and arguably the medium distresses in our relationships, sexually, romantically, communication-wise, how we uh, handle the chores, how we handle our commitments at Christmas time, whatever it is. The small and the medium distress, pain, annoyance, anger, most of that we can get on top of if we work with our mind. We can say, oh, I'm so frustrated with Neil right now. I can look at my mind. I can look at the emotion. I can feel the emotion in my body. I can look at the story. Neil's so unpredictable. He makes promises and he breaks them. And I can, you know, harness that in and ideally calm my body, calm my mind, you know, do a stretch, do a little meditation, go for a walk with the dog and come back and say, hey, babe, I need to talk to you about something that's really bothering me. So when we take all of that, it sounds complex. It's actually reasonably simple, but that doesn't mean it's easy to do. But it's reasonably simple to say, my mind is the root of my experience. How I engage with you, my beloved, is in reality, we're having engagements, but how my mind interprets them is where I'm either happy or not. Oh, I've got a hubby who forgets cat food. He's such a sweetheart versus I can't rely on you. I've got to do everything myself. Wow, those lead down different roads. Right, right. And so there are several different paths that I want to go down here. One of them, just to share, I I had this interesting insight when I was reading Buddha's Bedroom, which was thinking about the question that I often get asked, which is, when I've done all this growth, what if I find out that my partner isn't the person that I'm supposed to be with anymore? And, and I think that a lot of what you just said is the answer to that question. Not 100% of the time, but probably 85 to 90% of the time, as long as that growth includes how you process your own stories about your partner and your relationship, then you may find yourself able to connect in totally new ways that aren't based around the dysfunction that maybe brought you together to begin with, which is mm-hmm. so often the case. Um, so I just wanted to share that because for me, it was actually really inspiring as a way of saying, you know what, like, yeah, when you reach a new level of growth, you also reach a new level of ability to, um, to take a new approach in something that's problematic in your relationship. That's part of the growing. And some of that is the relational skill. It's how you talk to Neil about the cat food he keeps forgetting. And another part of that is how the the inner part of your conversation that's happening, recognizing, oh, it's my mind that is torturing me right now and whatever you do to get past that. And um, a question that I have for you is around, it's around those moments, like how would you describe someone being, having their story and getting past their story, but then still recognizing and Maybe it's not the cat food, but maybe it is a repeated sense of like, oh, you know, in reality, I'm noticing that my partner actually doesn't really pay much attention to me. It's not like you're giving them this, the, the negligent partner a blank check to just walk all over the, the new, newly practicing Buddhist, right? 
No, because that would just create more suffering. And Buddhism is all about trying to reduce our suffering, not increase it. So let me get a little more clear here. So if we're becoming more aware and we're examining our inner experience and our relational experience and we come to a dawning realization that maybe our partner's not that great at paying you know, romantic or um, connected attention to us, that's partly what you're putting out. Mm-hmm. What do we then do with that? Yeah. And, you know, these are such vast, vast questions, right? And as relationship therapists and coaches, both of us, we know, you know, there's no pithy answer. But what I'm putting forward as a really important tool in the toolbox that's different from a lot of other relationship advice is don't immediately go to, I need to fix this situation, i.e., teach you, beg you, plead, cajole, bully you into paying more attention to me in order to be happy. That's generally where we go. I have to fix the tire in order to be happy. And from Buddhist philosophy and from mindfulness, it's a bit of a radical idea for most of us in the West that we're not trained this way. Well, you don't need to fix the tire to be happy. Mm. Ipso facto, I don't need to get my partner to be attentive to me in a specific way I would enjoy in order to be happy. What? That means I've got all this space in which to be happy with my inattentive, distracted partner who I know loves me deeply and shows me in other ways. It also gives space for the two of us to say, hey, but with the inattentive, distracted, not romantic part, that is something I'd like to work on. But now I'm working on it from a place of curiosity and wonder and friendship and play and good humored acceptance that that is not your strong suit instead of pain, demand, and almost a cyclical failure experience. I had an experience with my dearly beloved this weekend. It was my birthday and um, I told him, all I want is something with wrapping paper on it. I said, I don't care if it costs a dollar. I don't care if it costs a dollar. It's not about that. I love wrapping paper, not because I love wrapping paper, but I love what it indicates to me, Mm -hmm. which is a thoughtfulness, a bit of precision, a bit of, you know, making something special. It goes back to old patterns of wanting to be made a fuss of on my birthday as a kid and all that good stuff we have some awareness of. So my dearly beloved goes and gets me a really sweet little gift. As dog lovers, you and I both, Neil, he got me this sweet book on, you know, dogs and whatever, lovely book. And he put it in a bag. Oh, uh, no, I'm telling you, we're set up for a fight now. He put it in a bag and he left it on the hotel bed and he left a card. And in the card, he said, you know, all sorts of loving things that were beautiful. And he said, and redneck wrapping. Now, redneck wrapping meaning, you know, I threw it in a bag. I didn't get, you know, shiver stuff. And I was not a very good Buddhist or a very good sex therapist or a very good relationship therapist or a very good wife or a very good person in that moment. (laughs) I kind of freaked out. All I asked for was it to be wrapped. I just wanted it to be wrapped. And I actually had some tears. I, I, I was very tired. It had been, been a very long week. Now, if I had practiced what I preach, which I try to as much as possible, I would have said, how cool. That's his way of rapping. This is my sweetheart. It's kind of funny. It's kind of cute. It's kind of quirky. We're different people. So just to just to bring this back together and to summarize it for our listeners, um, when I accept responsibility for my mind's reaction to reality, it frees me up to accept reality the way it is and be un- not upset. It also frees me up to say, okay, I'm not really upset, but hey, can we talk a little bit about the wrapping paper in the future? And what I would really love is on special occasions, if you if you got paper, because it's symbolic to me, it just lights me up and you'll get great return on your investment because I'll be so thrilled. And <laughs> But instead of doing it from a place of pain and um, hurt and the place we usually dialogue about problems. So I don't want listeners to think, oh my goodness, I have to accept every shortcoming in my relationship now from now on because it's my fault that my head isn't happy with it. No, no, that's not what we're saying. But we're giving people a super powerful tool to add to the way we usually do relationship. Work on our head as well as the interaction between you and I. And find a way to be happy and joyful and horny and in love and curious, regardless of what's going on for our sweetheart. And then maybe take their hand and ask them to jump into that playground with us when we're at our best. Cajole them out of their stuck place instead of trying to berate or guilt them or harangue them out of that place, which I think you and I have both experienced professionally and personally doesn't work all that well. 
Yeah, yeah. As soon as we are coming at people with what in the dog training world we'd call negative reinforcement, as soon as that is happening, they're going into their shame and feeling unworthy, and that's not a place where any good problem solving is happening, and certainly where the connection also isn't happening. Uh, yes, I love that and example that you gave because your husband clearly he was thinking about <laughs> that he he was probably thinking that he was getting at what you were asking for, like he acknowledged yep. it even, but he didn't really get what you were asking for in the right. in the end because what you wanted was fairly simple. Um, but yeah, he, but he missed that point. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I love him anyway. And we redeemed the weekend and often it wouldn't have gone that way. But, you know, the, the trifecta was there of exhaustion and working too much and hadn't had much time together and all that stuff. I'm a human being in relationships. So are you. Um, my private practice therapy office is upstairs from my home. You and I are speaking from my home right now. And I often say to my beautiful patients I get to work with, the couples I work with. You know, there's upstairs Cheryl and she's awesome. And then there's downstairs Cheryl and I'm a lot less skilled down here. <laughs> but all of us should be that, I think, self-revelatory and not set ourselves up because even though, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm literally considered a sex and love expert, that doesn't mean it's easy in the trenches of real life with real human beings. And I think that hopefully keeps us humble and it keeps us always searching and uh, looking for ways to bring this beautiful work to people, to do something which is sacred and profound, which is to choose to walk through life with a person. And uh, we learn if we're older than 16 or so that it's not as easy as we thought it would be and that soulmates don't exist and that Walt D Disney sold us a bill of goods and we should all sue him uh, <laughs> <laughs> that there is no happily ever after at least not all by itself well I think they have some money so maybe we should put a class action yeah, suit together yeah. and go <laughs> exactly. after Disney uh, yeah yeah and I, I think this is so true that we're, what we're after is not this idea of a perfect relationship where nothing ever goes wrong um, in fact, my latest catchphrase has been like the perfectly imperfect relationship that that's part of it. It's not that it nothing ever happens. It's how you show up, how you handle those things that inevitably go wrong, that show you how strong you are. And actually, I, I think is is just as valuable as those blissful bedroom moments are the moments where you survive something with your partner that was tough, that maybe in the past would have really derailed you. And you realize like, wow. We did that in five minutes, which would have before taken us five days or five yeah. months. Um, and that's a real beautiful level of resilience that you only get to if you're doing the inner and the outer work that you're talking about. Yeah, there are no, there are no easy relationships other than maybe in the first few months. And uh, it's the work and the joy and the, I think the old fashioned wedding vows are so profound, better or worse richer or poorer sickness and health. And I, I love us to remember that, that that's love, not you're so perfect and you'll keep me happy forever. Yay. I mean, that's naive and, and, and um, it's not bad. Goodness knows I'm not anti-romance. I love romance, but I love reality too. Yeah. So the first part of the book, and we'll probably move on to passion and stuff now, but the first part is sketching out the fundamental philosophy of, of, of using your mind in the way we've been talking about as one way to approach your relationship, to increase your happiness and your connection and um, avoid the pitfalls of having your day ruined because there's a flat tire. Because nobody's day's ruined by a flat tire. Your day's ruined by your mind. Yeah. Not the and I want to highlight, too, that you offered this really profound view of self-responsibility, that it's not only about your happiness, it's also about your horniness or about yeah. your awareness, your attention to a quiet moment. It's what you're bringing in every single moment to that moment is something that you have a say in that you can bring awareness to. Mm -hmm. And what I love about these kinds of conversations is that now that you have heard us say this, you will not be able to experience the moment the same way ever again. You will experience it and you'll recognize, oh, wow, I'm really unhappy right now. And it will give you the opportunity to ask yourself, like, what is my story that I'm telling myself right now? Yes, yes. 
Yes. The phrase I use in the book that I bet you resonated with is, we are story-making machines, yeah. right? I know that you do that a lot in your work and you're teaching on this podcast and your other venues. It's so important. What's the story right now and is it working for me? Yeah. If the story is, you're the worst husband ever and all I wanted was wrapping paper and nobody loves me, that's a dumbass story. I mean, what good is that doing me? What good is that doing for the evening? And sure, we're flooded physiologically. We've got biochemistry going on. We all know that we're when we're in this story, it's not always easy to snap our fingers and change the page. Fair enough. But at least when we can realize we're stuck on a yucky page of the book and this story is destructive, we can at least begin the process of stepping away, calming ourselves, finding our grounding, maybe hugging and holding our partner, letting our parasympathetic nervous system um, take over the sympathetic fight or flight, calm ourselves, and then we can probably turn the page to a blank page and start again. Not easy, but profoundly beautiful to take that as a challenge personally and with our partner. If they're willing to engage in some of that study with us, we can do it with or without them being fully on board, like much relationship work. But to say, I'm I'm interested in rewriting my love story one mindful breath at a time is how I sometimes put it. Mm, I love that. I love that. And as we bring our attention to the moment there, this is like a perfect segue, I think, because... For one thing, I think a beautiful remedy for those really triggered moments is how you presence yourself. You know, our limbic system is lost in this sense that the tiger is chasing us. Mm -hmm. So being able to bring yourself into presence with your partner and talk about what is literally happening that's, mm-hmm. I think, part of the mindfulness you're you're advocating for is you mm-hmm. get you separate your your story from what is actually happening, what the reality is that you maybe mm-hmm. don't like, but this is reality, and then that can bring you into like I'm here in this room with my partner, they're standing in front of me, we're both breathing, the cat is meowing, um, whatever is happening, that that brings you back into the moment, and once you're there all those systems start to come back online. And now let's talk about how being in the moment is so important to revitalizing the sexual passion that Mm -hmm. so many people lose. And I'm putting lose in quotes because I love how you talk about how it's never really gone, um, that it's there within us. So yeah, yeah, how does our mindfulness and being moment focused get us back into passionate connection with our partner? Right. Oh, my favorite topic. So the first chunk of the book is laying out what we've been talking about, the mindset and some of the fundamental teachings of how to use your mind to to uh, interpret reality and be happy regardless of reality, flat tire or no. Then I move into, I chunk it into what I call the passion triangle. And I'll briefly lay that out. And then I think you and I are going to focus on one or two key pieces of that. When I talk about how to help people uh, create or become or uncover or revitalize or reignite night passion. I break it down to three keys to passion as a way for people to remember it. And I use the structure of the triangle because I was told once by an engineer friend that a triangle is an incredibly uh, stable structure. And if you want to build a big building, you want to build it on 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 the variation of the idea of the triangle, all sides leaning on each other, strongly unshakable. Isn't that what we want to build in our love life? All three sides of our relationship Uh, leaning on each other strong and unshakable. What are the three? I'll name them. I'll briefly describe them. I talk about intimacy being the base of your triangle, thrill being one side of the triangle, and sensuality being the other side. And intimacy is what a lot of your work and my work covers, Neil, which is I don't use intimacy here as a euphemism for sex. I use it as psychological, emotional communication, even spiritual connection, that sense of knowing each other and being known. Um, What John Gottman and team call love maps, which many other people just talk about. Uh, I, I feel seen by you, heard by you, ups and downs, the little little stuff, the big stuff. True intimacy grows over time, months and years through what you were just talking about, the ups and downs, the things we go through, and maybe we can stand in the middle of it and survive. Intimacy, key to lifelong passion, because the kind of passion I'm talking about isn't just 
a wild weekend. I'm talking about sustainable, fluctuatingly alive passion, uh, sexually, emotionally, romantically, and spiritually. So intimacy is really important. We probably won't talk a lot about it for the rest of this conversation, but a chunk of the book is talking about how to bring mindfulness to your intimacy and communication practices, mindful apology, things like that. Thrill and sensuality are what uh, I think people really respond to as ways to think about their relationship that are that are cast in a slightly different manner than maybe they've heard before. Thrill, I'm talking about uh, the the ineffable sense of uh, butterflies in the tummy and and a rush of lust or, or or excitement through our mind and body that most of us experience very easily in the beginning of our relationship when we're dating, we're beginning to fall in love. Um, you know, in my days, I'm going to date myself a bit here, but it was all about the answering machine light and whether it was blinking or not when you walked in the door. You didn't have the cell phone. So you were at work all day and you came in at 5.30 or whatever and you know immediately I'd look to the corner of the room where the answering machine sat and if it was blinking it meant there was a message and hopefully it was him or her and I would go and listen to the message and then it was my grandmother and I love me my grandmother but you're so disappointed. We all know what it was like to be excited and anticipatory and feeling a rush of thrill. To be at your office desk and have literally a rush of lust in your body when you remember that goodnight kiss from last night. Now, what happens three, six, or 18 months down the road? You and I are familiar, and most of your listeners may be, with um, the findings that there's a period of what's called you know, luminescence or numinosity or whatever we want to call it in the falling in love stage that is biochemically driven. We've got dopamine, we've got serotonin and oxytocin, we've got love hormones, we've got sexual drive. We're cave people in cave bodies and we're programmed to mate and, and get it over with. So the, the pursuit and the chase is very thrilling. And then we move into a phase of what I call marriage incorporated, whether or not you're married, gay, straight, or alternate couples. I'm talking about when we Make a, a, a dedicated commitment to each other in whatever form. I just call it marriage incorporated. And that's where the thrill is gone, we think. I'll get back to that. But we think, as the old song says, you know, the thrill is gone. And we're, you know, we're doing okay. I love you. You love me. We've got the kids, the dogs, the horses, the cats, no cat food, but, you know, whatever, uh, and so on. And we're good. We're fine, Neil. We're fine. I like you. You like me. We're in love. We're not looking for an affair directly. We're not wanting to divorce. And we have a good time on vacation. And we are running the business of us, the mortgage, the pets, the kids, uh, the, the activities, your career, my career. You've got that podcast, but I've got this other thing. We all know this. We are often living it right now. Marriage Incorporated is where the thrill seems to have gone. And we're in contentment. Now, that's a natural phase. My work's about bringing the thrill back, reinfusing Marriage Incorporated and turning it into Passion Incorporated. I'm going to get to sensuality with you probably a little later in this conversation. So let's stay with thrill right now. Great. A reminder, the three are intimacy, thrill, and sensuality. Because you asked me a key question, which is how does the mind or mindfulness or paying attention relate to thrill? In every single way. Because when you and I are new, it's novel. And novelty automatically takes care of thrill. I am curious as heck about you. I can't wait to hear about your day, who your best friend was in school and what happened to that friendship, where and how you lost your virginity and how embarrassing was it. I want to know everything. I want to know where you bought that shirt. I want to know what what your relationship with your parents are like. It's easy. We're organically curious when we're falling in love. The thrill is based on novelty. You are uncharted territory and I can't wait to map every single bit of you, every inch of your body and every neuron of your mind. I want to know you. Right. And there's often some fear involved there as well. That's also fueling the the dopamine or the, the chemicals that are coursing through what our bodies. Great observation. I am investing and I'm, I'm fearful or anxious or excited that, you know, I'm falling in love with Neil and I don't know if he's going to feel the same way. And am I overplaying my hand? All of that's very exciting. Yeah. Uh, sometimes painfully so. And when we then move into contentment and life and busyness, we get complacent often. And the few of you listening that didn't, bravo and hallelujah. But the majority of us get complacent and I start to take you for granted. And what was new seems familiar. And it blows my mind when as couples we say, you know, I don't really think there's anything new to learn about my sweetheart. I'm like, are you crazy? <laughs> Have you met them? 
We are vast. We contain multitudes. I think that's Whitman. I'm not entirely yeah, sure. It is. You will. Thank you. Thank you. You will never know your partner anywhere near as deeply as you think you do. And this is also where I mentioned affairs. And I just want to ground this in reality for all of us. If you and I are in long-term relationship and our partner loves us and thinks we're cool, but they're not all that interested in our day uh, or our hopes and dreams right now, we're not creating time to explore that together. We're not cultivating thrill. We've lost novelty in terms of newness. And we're not creating novelty with our mind and our activities. And then you and I meet someone at work or at play or at a conference who's interested in what we're interested in. We have a fascinating conversation that is so often the grain of an affair possibility, someone finding us fascinating. So the work I uh, bring with bringing mindfulness and, and the Buddhist philosophy to our love and sex life is create novelty all over again by what you so cleverly summarized a little bit ago in this conversation. If I show up here and now with you in this moment, you're freaking fascinating. Even if I've slept next to you for the last 26 years, even if I believe I know everything about you, you are filled with surprises if only I have the eyes to see. Mm-hmm. And I think a very simple way to make this relatable to people is, uh, let's say you and I love chocolate, and uh, I am able to gift you with a tiny sliver of the most gorgeous, I don't know, Belgian truffle in exactly the flavor and style you would most love. Even as I say this, my mouth starts to water a little bit, and probably yours and probably our listeners. And I give this to you, and I say, you know, Neil, I want you to take your time, and I want you to just bring this to your nostrils and have a little little scent. And you're like, oh, my goodness, it smells delicious. And then I ask you to just place it on your tongue, but just leave it there just for a few seconds. And, and it starts to melt a tiny bit. And then I ask you to roll it around, and it's silky, and it's smooth. You've got texture. You've got the, the orgasmic flavor explosion. And then um, you just enjoy it. You take time. You swallow. And it's gorgeous, right? You're killing you me. <laughs> oh, I, right after this, I'm going truffle shopping. And I bet what you do not say to me is, yeah, whatever, I've had a lot of chocolate before. And the reason is you're just showing up here and now with that sliver of truffle. And you're experiencing, you're experiencing it as though for the first time. And if you've had thousands of chocolate, if you have a two chocolate a day habit, this moment is gorgeous if you focus on it. Mm. The power and the eroticism of attention. Now, if you were to, and let's do this together right now, um, I want you to take your hand and everybody listening and just gently stroke the top of your other hand with the fingers. I'm using my right hand fingers. I'm stroking the top of my left hand. I'm closing my eyes and I'm focusing on it for a few seconds. And it feels very powerful. Yeah simply because of the special sauce of attention. Imagine kissing like that. Imagine someone licking our thigh like that. That's the way it felt for um, the majority of us in the beginning when we were exploring each other. We were locked and loaded on that sensation and it was so alive and it was so erotic and it was so romantic, not just because it was new, but because we were paying attention. Yeah. Novelty makes it easy to pay attention. Familiarity does not make it easy to pay attention. The first time you drive a tricky mountain road, you pay a lot of attention. If you've driven it 4,000 times because your house is at the top, you stop paying attention. So what's the point of all that? If you want thrill here and now after 27 or 48 years or 30 days or however long it's been, it's your mind paying attention to this truffle, this kiss, this conversation with you, this description of your business meeting today that makes it alive and passionate. Interest makes us fall in love over and over again. Interest and attention and mindfulness make thrill perpetual instead of simply part of the first few months of our relationship. That part comes automatically. Enjoy the heck out of it. I love falling in love. I love the rush of all that biochemistry and projection and craziness. And when I counsel people, when they ask me what to do about it, I'm like, enjoy the freaking ride. It's a roller coaster, but just know you're on a roller coaster. It's amazing. It's intense. You're in an altered state of consciousness. The biochemistry of falling in love literally mimics the biochemistry of obsessive compulsive disorder in functional MRI machines. We actually are mentally ill when we're falling in love. (laughs) Enjoy the heck out of it. And then when it starts to settle, change, shift, and some of the deep work starts to happen and it's no longer so perfect, that's where we can say, okay, I am interested in 
boarding the roller coaster volitionally over and over again through our decades together. That's mindfulness, that's choice, that's effort, that's how we can begin to keep thrill alive forever. Great. Yeah, that's exactly how you take charge of your story. So if you're able in the moment to remind yourself, just like I had the ability to be to choose happiness in this moment, even no matter what the circumstances are, now I also have the ability to choose attention and to, yes. to put my attention into this level of fascination. And where mind where my mind went strangely was not that these words are necessarily connected at all, but I was thinking about fastening, like you're fastening your attention to someone, so you're fascinated with them. And and the way that that brings you into joy also, I think, takes you out of that realm of wanting someone to fulfill your expectations. So, and and this, I think, goes into the sensuality piece, right? Because when you're in the moment and you're fascinated and you're just enjoying that last sense of the of the chocolate on your tongue, like you don't want that moment to end. You're not really thinking <laughs> about the next piece, right? If you're able to bring your intention in that that fully. Um, and where so many people get lost, I think in, especially when there's a disconnected state where we've been in relationship for a long time and it feels like the chasm between us is vast. I don't even yes. know how to get to being sexual with you because I'm so wrapped up in business and the kids and the dog and the cat food. Um, <laughs> so, but the way it's like such a quick bridge is to be able to give your attention like that to your partner and to find that fascination. And then it's almost like that question of how do we get to the bedroom in some respects becomes a lot less important because you're enjoying that moment potentially almost as much as you would enjoy the bedroom. Yes. And it gets you into yeah. that enjoyment, which leads you into maybe more of the sensual experience with your partner. Yes, I want to comment on a few of those great observations before we move into sensuality. I love the idea of fastening and fascination because there's actually a fairly esoteric Buddhist word to describe deep concentrated attention, which is uh, called wataka. And it means to tack onto, which is to fasten, mm. where your attention kind of gloms on to this breath and it's unshakably there. So you're intuitively really on that point there, Neil, of fastening and fascination because you're the totality of my experience in this present moment. I am focused on you, the truffle, uh, the business proposal, the, the kiss, etc. Uh, the other thing is sensuality is the word I chose on purpose. And again, you've intuitively picked up on this. I didn't call the third side of the triangle sexuality because sensuality is a much broader field in which to play. All five senses, touch, taste, sound, smell, and vision. And in uh, Buddhist and other teachings, the sixth sense, which is our mind, we can play in that whole realm. So the third side of passion, intimacy, kind of our relational connectedness, psychological work, a delight, communication, thrill we've talked about here, uh, every moment being a perfect truffle. No, that doesn't happen for me either, but I can aspire to it more often. Mm -hmm. And thirdly, sensuality, our sexual and erotic life across the entire spectrum. Everything from my eyes meeting yours across the room and having a spark of, there's my sweetheart, to holding hands while we walk the dog in the forest, to kissing, to cuddling when we watch TV, and to the entire spectrum of our erotic sexual life, whether that's a verbal foreplay with a sexy text, whether that's uh, kissing, whether it is in our lovemaking, the breadth and depth and possibility and variety of our lovemaking. I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, all of that really is also in your head. Yeah. I'm turned on or not turned on in my head. I'm interested or not interested in my head. I'm present with this orgasm in my head or I'm fantasizing about someone else while I'm orgasming, which means I'm not fully present with this physiological and emotional experience. It's still fun, but I'm having sex with someone else somewhere else while I, my body's with you, which is a pretty common phenomenon. I'm not even conscious at my own orgasm and feeling fully the deliciousness of this truffle. Mm hmm yeah. Um, when Chloe and I, in our course, when we talk about this, we talk about the continuum and developing this mindful awareness that you are always on 
this continuum of sensual experience with your partner. Um, even if you're thinking about them, you are on that continuum. And the reason I talk about it that way is because I like the sense that you're always connected in that way, that it it helps, I think, also bridge the gap between that um, disconnection or how do we how do we even overcome this gap between us and where we stand right now? If you've all if you've always been nurturing that sense of like, well, we're on this continuum, no matter what, it's just a matter of where we are. We're not in the bedroom part of the continuum. We're on the kitchen making dinner part of the continuum where we can be aware of each other's breath or I can go and touch you and and really pay attention to that touch. And and now we're we're in the same dimension of sensuality even though we're at a different place than necessarily, you know, hot, sweaty sex between the sheets. Yep. I am so happy that you, you teach it that way and help people come to that, that understanding. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to say, unfortunately, in my experience, not a lot of couples are doing what you're promoting there and that they don't experience it as a continuum. They experience it as our relational life and our psychological life and our, you know, loving each other life. And it's like, boom. And then there's our sex life. Yeah, yeah. And it's not experienced as a continuum. So I think a lot of people would say, I love making dinner with my sweetie and we're kind of laughing and joking and we're listening to oldies and dancing around the kitchen. But I'm not connecting that to sex. And that's what you and I in our own unique ways are attempting to encourage people to do, which is... Oh my goodness, the state of sexuality in long-term relationship is really poor. There aren't any very good um, surveys that give us a real glimpse into what's happening in long-term relationship bedrooms, but clinically and and the best of the surveys and research that's out there, I would suggest the majority of long-term couples are having sex maybe a couple of times a month. And um, it is something they're neglecting. It's something that they're even necessarily avoiding, although that can be the case. It's more like passive there's so many other things going on so So many other things fatigue and netflix the biggest killers of sex ever maybe there's (laughs) another class action suit there but you know uh, i'm I'm canadian and we're not litigious when we spill coffee we just clean it up we don't usually sue but i don't know i mean we're obviously teasing neither you or i want to sue anybody but humor is also good in love and sex here you go and in the in the passion triangle for sensuality uh, i just want to offer a few teachings that i think will be super helpful for people listening um and hopefully very reassuring for people in long-term relationships who are not having much much sex and have very little spontaneous desire. They're not just like, oh, I want to jump your bones right now. That's sort of the old thrill phase for a lot of us, the, the early roller coaster phase. I want to let people know there's some very important research. Rosemary Basson uh, at a UBC in Vancouver, Canada, she works with a new model for female sexual desire. People can look her work up. But here's the take-home message that's reassuring. Her research indicates that the majority of long-term couples start making love from a place of sexual neutrality. Now, what does that mean? It means the majority of long-term couples start making love when neither of them is particularly in the mood. They're not turned on and horny in the body. I call that uh, physical arousal. There's different language for these. I'll use mine, um, how I break it down to make it uh, relatable to people. So they're not physically turned on and they don't necessarily have mental desire like, oh, I really mentally feel like making love. Often they have sex because it's like, dang, honey, it's been three weeks. We should probably have sex. Yeah, we probably should. And that does not sound romantic, but I tell you what it is. It's real. Mm-hmm. I had a patient, uh, a gay a gay patient lesbian patient last week say to me she and her wife hadn't made love in four months and i'd been encouraging her to really you know attend to that and and open up those possibilities so she was really excited because they'd made love and she said oh cheryl it was so great Uh, i was snuggled in and i'll call her wife jane and she said you know jane had her back to me and then jane said do you have your mouth guard in yet (laughs) that was the big move that was the big move man do you have your mouth guard in yet? And we laughed, my patient and I, because we thought, right on, baby, that's real life. And she said, oh, I don't. And the rest is great. Why do I make that point? Because that's real life. So rest it. assured, if we're not feeling spontaneously lusty or really in our mind, you know, oh, I really want to make love, that is normal and okay. 
And so one of the things I suggest to people, it's not a novel idea. Your guest uh, a few uh, episodes ago, uh, Tammy Nelson, suggests the same thing as many wise people. You probably do too. Make a once a week sex date. And make that be unshakable. Like Monday night, we make love, uh, whether we have a headache, whether we're super tired, whether one of the kids has a flu, we make love, whether we're into it or not. Now, the only reason we won't is if really through illness or a business meeting, we consult each other and say, hey, babe, I'm not sure I can make our Monday night sex date. Are you okay if we move it to Wednesday this week? Because that way you start making love, touching, kissing, have a hot shower, have a bath. When you're not in the mood, don't wait till you're in the mood. In fact, I like to counsel people to, uh, one of my catchphrases is, never say you're not in the mood ever again. And what I'm saying by that is, it's okay if you're not in the mood. No one should be in the mood if you're making scrambled eggs and thinking about your tax return. (laughs) Tax day in these days today, right? It is. um, And someone comes up and wraps their arms around you from behind and kisses your neck and says, hey, baby, what do you think? It's like, I'm not in the mood. Worst thing to say ever, even though it's true. Instead, I suggest people say, not right now, babe. Ask me later. It's a very different energy. And it acknowledges what we're talking about right now, that uh, waiting until you're in the mood to have sex means you probably won't have very much sex. Versus, uh, I have a couple who's working with the weekly sex date just for the last three weeks. And uh, they were having sex maybe once a month. They like sex. They have successful sexuality together. They were just busy and tired. But they made a weekly sex date and they've made love five times in the last two weeks. Because the sex date on Monday kind of got everything warmed up and then Saturday morning was like, hey, let's have a quickie. Uh, That's not true for all of us. But what I'm saying is this is also the practice of mindful attention. If we're not paying attention to our sexual life on that continuum, as you so beautifully put it. If we don't bridge the gap in our continuum from you and I in our humor, in our playfulness, in our parenting, in our going to the symphony and all the other ways we are, if we don't remember we're naked under these clothes, if we don't remember that the unique thing about you and I, if we're choosing a variation of monogamy, is that sexual contact is unique to my relationship with you. And we're neglecting it and we're expecting it to take care of itself. And we're buying into the myth that the thrill can't last forever. And it's normal for sex drive to wane. It is typical for sex drive to wane, which makes it normal on a bell curve. But that's like saying it's normal when you get old to get unfit. That is typical on the bell curve. But if we choose fitness as we age, if we choose to be at the gym or yoga class, we don't have to fit what's normal. Don't be lazy and old with your sex life. Bring mindfulness to the sensuality side of your passion triangle. And it gets so much bigger than that. We probably don't have time to go into it, but I want to at least mention to people where it gets super juicy to make to use your mind in your lovemaking is the aspect of tantric sexuality, transcendent mind states in my lovemaking with you, where the sense of you and I dissolve and the orgasm turns from its typical physiological experience, which is actually pretty puny. The average male orgasm lasts seven seconds and the average female orgasm lasts about 20 seconds, that's a pretty puny amount of pleasure, as great as it is. Through meditation and focusing your mind and some practices I talk about in the book, and you can research elsewhere as well, around tantric sexuality, extended orgasm, full body orgasm, we can turn the orgasmic experience into something that lasts much longer than 7 or 22 seconds. Imagine the orgasmic pleasure filling your whole body for minutes even longer than that. Imagine being to exchange that on an energetic level. That's some of the really beautiful places that working with our mind, our partner, our heart, and our connection can lead us to in the sexual realm, a type of transcendent sexuality. So maybe once a month or once a quarter, you decide to have gourmet sexuality and sensuality with your partner instead of your typical meal. And I talk about that in the, in the latter chapters in the book, because Why don't I talk about them in the beginning of the book? Because if you try to practice tantric sex without clearing up some of your unfinished business, learning to communicate better, enjoying cooking dinner together, uh, remembering your partner's fascinating and all the things we're touching on today, Neil, um, you're not probably going to have a 15-minute transcendent orgasm. Don't be greedy. Put in a little bit of groundwork. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, create and cultivate the conditions with thrill, with intimacy, and with sensual contact to uh, move into some beautiful areas of sexuality and intimate spiritual sexual connection that a lot of us don't explore. And that can certainly make a long-term relationship fascinating again. Yeah. Fascinating again and open up new worlds from what I usually uh, refer to as our typical nipple, nipple, crotch, good night routine. <laughs> well, we just do the same dang thing every time. And I'm not opposed to that. But, you know, sometimes create a gourmet meal. Right. So um, first, I just want to mention if you are interested to learn more about Cheryl Fraser's work, um, obviously, you can read her book, Buddha's Bedroom, The Mindful Loving Path to, to Sexual Passion and Lifelong Intimacy. There are lots of little how-to and action items in the book to help you along the journey. So I recommend that. You can also visit her website, which we will list in the show notes. Um, it is drcherylfraser.com. And uh, as a reminder, if you want to download the show notes and the transcript of today's episode, it's neilsatin.com slash BB, as in Buddha's bedroom. And uh, you can always text the word passion, which is appropriate for this episode, uh, to the number 33444. Um, in terms of Tantra, I think it would be great to have you back on at some point to chat about that more. Um, we have, if you're listening and you're curious, we've had Diana Richardson on the show uh, episode two is a great place to start. It was the very second episode of the podcast. Wow. Um, and Ma uh, Margot Anand has also been on the show. I can't remember her episode number, but if you search for Margot Anand on my website, you'll find her. Um, two amazing tantric practitioners who can at least start the conversation with you with what we're talking about today. Um, Beautiful. Cheryl, Beautiful. I'm wondering if you... Because um, you offer um, on your website, um, the people can sign up and get free stuff every week. Mm -hmm. You offer mm -hmm. little love bites that give people a, a, a piece of something to work on or to take action on or to help them think about their relationship in a different way, which is, I think, really helpful um, to have those like bite-sized um, actionable items. You, you yeah, talk a lot about Tantra. I do. It's critical to have bite-sized action items because, as we talked about, complacency, familiarity, fatigue, and Netflix and everything else gets in the way. So they're called love bites because they're meant to be small bites of digestible. You know, uh, some of them are two seconds, five seconds, 30 seconds to read a little reminder for your love this week. So uh, that's what that's how I try to help each of us, myself included. My sweetheart and I read my bites and try to put them into practice. <laughs> we've and we've been there, yeah. Yeah, if people want to um, learn a little bit about more about Tantra, I would start with the episodes you've suggested. And I have a 10-minute free video on my website as well people can watch just to get a sense of what is a tantric orgasm and how is it different. And and uh, that, that's a lifelong exploration that I welcome everybody to, to engage in. And yeah, I'd be delighted to dedicate a, a whole episode to that in the future. It deserves a bit of a bit more of an arc so we can teach people some techniques on, on, on your show here and have them start with that. But uh, don't lose hope. There are worlds to discover sexually, emotionally, romantically, and conversationally with this person you think you know everything about. So there's one little bite that I'm wondering if you could offer our listeners today. Um, I'm wondering if you can offer something for, like, let's say you have that sex date on your calendar. And, you know, I have 10 different ideas here, but I've, I'm hoping <laughs> you can offer one thing that brings people into the sensual dimension with their partner, something simple that helps reignite how they experience their partner this way, how they can invite their partner into the experience of them in a sensual way. Um, what, what can you offer our listeners today as sort of their, like a little take home bite that they might try? Beautiful. Try this at home. Um, there are a lot of ideas, but the one I'm going to offer right now is pretty simple, but very profound and very few of us do it, which is uh, on your erotic date uh, this week, uh, take at least an hour and break it into two 30-minute segments, uh, and it can be longer if you wish, and do a giving and a receiving of erotic touch with the rule that you're not allowed to touch the 
overtly sexual zones. So no genitals, no bums, and no breasts. And how that would work would be the following. Um, Flip a coin as to who goes first. Whoever wins the coin toss is the receiver first. And the receiver lays down on their back, uh, nude, their eyes closed. You can use candles and and sometimes soft music without lyrics is nice to help relax the receiver, give them something to kind of let their mind dream on. And the giver... Uh, you, you probably did this when you were falling in love and wildly sexual, but you probably haven't done it in a long time. It gives you 30 minutes to explore your partner's body uh, with your fingers, with your tongue, with your hair, with a feather, with uh, whatever you like to just explore that body. When's the last time you licked the back of your partner's knees? Uh, everybody listening is going, um, about <laughs> 17 years. I think we probably did that that time we went to the cabin for the dirty weekend. Anyway, um, so giving and receiving a erotic touch. The receiver, use this as a mindfulness practice. There's more description of that in the book and in, in some exercises I've, I've given, as you mentioned, to do this with your partner. But as you're lying there and your mind's racing about this and that and thinking and being distracted the way minds are, unless they're very well trained in meditation, try to refocus. Every time you notice you're off in your head, try to refocus on, okay, Neil's fingers or fingernails are scratching along my uh, kneecap right now. And just focus on trying to experience that as deeply as you can. Mind races off, come back. Oh, now he or she's nibbling on my neck. So you're learning as the receiver to really start to pay. And this is preliminary. It takes some practice. Really starting to notice the actual sensory experience without story. That can lead to persons who have difficulty with orgasm, erection, premature ejaculation. This can help with that down the road, by the way. Mm. Then at the end of the time, when the timer goes off, you thank your partner as the receiver and you switch and you become the giver and you explore your partner. So you're doing multiple things here. You're training, focusing on your partner when you're the giver. You're training on focusing on your own experience when you're the receiver. You're training on exploring the sensual body away from the usual, as I call it, as you heard, nipple, nipple, crotch, goodnight points mm-hmm. that we're you know, used to diving for. Nothing wrong with that, but we're expanding it. And we're looking at creativity, we're looking at eroticism, and we're looking at making it more interesting. Because if we uh, fell madly in love with a new person or, or, or into the taboo of an affair, that sort of exploration might come naturally. All we're doing is creating it here and now with the one we're with. So there's, a, there's an idea people can do, and I'll, I'll make the implicit explicit. For this exercise, you could either then stop, and that's the end of your sensual date, or you could take it into lovemaking if you wish. There's different reasons to do either. Uh, But it's really about erotically exploring. And let me just finish by saying a sex date doesn't mean you have intercourse or either person necessarily has an orgasm. It means it's an erotic experience that involves nudity, touching, and connecting in that way. And that's a real relief for exhausted bodies too. Our sexual date might be we play, we touch, and one of us chooses to have an orgasm and the other one says, I'm completely satisfied right now just with playing and kissing and and helping you as you touched yourself, etc. There's no right or wrong. It's the mindset of exploration and the willingness for if it doesn't go well to just begin again with curiosity. Yeah, I love the permission that you bring to how you approach this kind of time together. And it's interesting because when I said the word permission, I'm also thinking about the permission to say no. And Mm -hmm. so there's, even though, for instance, like you just mentioned, um, in this exercise, you might say that the uh, genital areas are off limits, if you have points on your body that are triggers for you, it's okay for those to be off limits too. Like you can set rules so that you feel safe enough to have this erotic, but not explicitly sexual interaction with your partner. Yes. Create safety for you. Um, And I I love that too, about when you mentioned the uh, never, never say I'm not in the mood. And what you offered was to say, not right now, how about later? Um, That really reminds me of the Gottman's work around um, Mm. the power of saying no and both people having permission to say no, but it's not a no never, it's a no and, or a no let's do this instead. And I think speaking scientifically, they proved mathematically that the more that each person feels free to say no, the more sex they actually have, ironically. So I love that you incorporate that into your work and, 
and hopefully if you're listening you'll get a date on the calendar with your partner uh, for this week even and if you if you are not partnered you can do that for yourself as well you can have the self-exploration that or you know find a good friend but um you could definitely do that with yourself as a way of exploring your own erotic uh, inner experience and connection to self Yes, I'm so glad you mentioned that. And although the book is written primarily for couples, um, everything in it applies to those of us when we're not in relationship, particularly around discovering our own mindsets, our own erotic potential, our own mindful touch. And uh, there are solo erotic exercises in the book as well, because um, my goodness, get yourself ready for when or if you choose to be partnered again. Yeah, it's amazing how many opportunities you have in line at the grocery store to be reminded like, oh, this is all a story in my head, what's happening right now, right? Right. Right. Well, Cheryl Fraser, you have been so uh, deliciously generous with your time and wisdom today, and it's it's, uh, such a delight to have you here to chat about Buddha's Bedroom, your new book, and I hope that you listening have gotten a lot out of today's show and that you take the opportunity to visit uh, Cheryl Fraser's website and find out more about the work that she's offering. You mentioned that you're going to be coming out with a course as well in the fall, right? Yes, I am. Uh, Mid-September, I'll be debuting an online course for couples, eight weeks on this material and more that um, that couples can do at home. I think the way a lot of your work is so important that we create work that people can do from home because they can't necessarily arrange their lives, their childcare, their business lives to come at the same time to a therapist's office for deep work. And I've been looking for ways to, to offer deep work to people. So um, that's debuting in the fall. And anybody who goes to the website or signs up for Love Bites will we'll get all the information on that when uh, it goes live. I'm very excited to uh, work with people in that medium. Great. And if you download uh, the transcript of today's episode, then we can also let you know when Cheryl's course becomes available. Um, so some incentive Great. to grab the transcript. Dr. Cheryl Fraser, thank you so much for joining us today on Relationship Alive. It's been so great to have you here. Thank you so much. And thank you for the work you do, Neil. And, you know, people may often take for granted the plethora of profound, free, amazing, accessible content out there. So I encourage people listening uh, to support this podcast and other uh, great podcasts out there that, that bring this amazing work to us that we didn't used to be able to get so easily. We're all very blessed. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word PASSION, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.